This podcast is brought to you by the website of doom.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Aaron Fever Talks 2, Episode 4. I am Aaron Fever, and I'm really glad you have decided to listen to this podcast this month because my guest is Molly Lewis. And Molly Lewis, I'm assuming you probably know who she is if you're listening to this because you're probably a fan of her like I am. Uh, she is a musician um, and she uh, is a podcaster as well. And she she's just a, like a talented woman. She's a great little artist. Little artist? She is short. That still sounded slightly condescending the way I said that. But yeah, she is uh, just wonderful at everything. And uh, I'm very lucky and happy to say that she's also a friend and I've known her for a number of years at this point and uh, she has always been just just a great person to me and in general so I'm I was really happy and and excited to sit down and talk to her for an hour Uh, and I think you'll enjoy this because we had a lot of fun uh, just a quick reminder, because this is you're not going to hear any advertisements on this podcast. Uh, I am not uh, famous or important enough to get advertising, but uh, I do. Um, I am lucky enough to have people who uh, donate to my Patreon, and these lovely patrons have allowed for this podcast to exist. So I always got to give them a shout out at the start of this podcast. Hello, folks! If you want to hear these podcasts a week earlier like they do, um, become a patron yourself by going to patreon.com forward slash Aaron Fever. All you need to donate is like a dollar a month and you get like extra little bonus stuffs, little sneak peeks, the odd silly video for me and it allows me to pay bills, which is really fantastic. So uh, without further ado, um, without more rambling from me, I like to keep these about two minutes before the podcast starts. Uh, let's get on with the show. Hey, can you hear me? I can. Can you hear me? Yeah, perfectly. Awesome. Okay. Yeah, Skype can be just a bit buggy sometimes. I've uh, just found out it's using uh, the speakers on my computer when I am plugged into a audio thing. So I don't know. Why, why would you do that to me, Skype? Why are you playing <laughs> me like that? Um, yeah, I, I find lately it's been cutting out on me once in the in Blue Moon. So uh, don't be surprised if I have to reconnect at some point during this call. Okay, can can we invent some sort of uh, some sort of mythology for why that keeps happening? Like, oh, well, I'm driving through a tunnel while I'm interviewing you, so I sorry. Let's I, pick up where we were. I, I, yeah, I'd love I'd love it if it was just some idea that like birds were just sitting. Too many birds were sitting on a particular wire, and uh, <laughs> so our voices were coming out of birds' beaks instead. <laughs> sorry, I had to go scare those birds off my my utility pole. Now I'm back. Uh, how are you this morning? I'm I'm well. How are you this evening? <laughs> <laughs> I know it's fun. This is actually this weird, lovely um, three week period where because you guys do your time change at a different time than we do. So we, normally we're eight hours apart, but today we're only seven. Oh. Yes. Way to go, America, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> it's great. I look forward to this moment every year because it makes podcasting uh, slightly easier. <laughs> I'm going to have to make a note of that for next year. Holy crap. Yeah, we uh, we, we go back uh, or go forward, I guess, uh, this weekend. So um, boo earns to that. Uh, actually, someone pointed out to me recently that the I've been using boo earns wrong all, the, all these years because boo earns is not a negative thing. 
um, because he, their boo is bad, but boo earns is positive. Um, boo earns is the retcon of boo, yeah. Yeah, so uh, when I've been sarcastically saying boo earns as because I'm too hip to say boo, apparently, uh, I've been doing it all wrong. So there you go. <laughs> I think to those people, you just say regular boo. Isn't you too? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Boo to your pedantry. <laughs> um, so you're just back, was it from C2E2? No, no, I, um, well, we did the cruise at the end of February, and then we had like a ha- week and a half in our house, and then Ben went wanted to go to Chicago for his birthday, so we went to Chicago for like an extended weekend. Oh, okay. And then I had 48 hours in my house, and then I turned around and went to my mom's to visit. So uh, I have maybe, I think until the middle of april i'm in my house so it's 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 i'm looking forward to not being on planes for a while yeah um and what are you, where are you going in april there's a marion and pat i think you've met pat marion's plus never one. no never got to meet pat unfortunately no because oh because he's never been to he would like dragon con but um we he's organizing a miniature sort of i guess day one is like a comic book convention in juno and then there's three days after that that are basically an artist retreat for everybody that exhibited at this comics convention. So he's rented like an actual campground and there will be some members of the public, but it's mostly for the attendees, like the exhibitors nice. to kind of exchange tips. So he's trying to make this sort of artist summit in the middle of the woods in Juneau, which sounds really nice. So we got invited to that. And we're trying to cut out cons in general this year, but we're sort of making exceptions for really friend-dense ones. Yeah, yeah. Everyone kind of says, like, like Dragon Con, for example, is a very kind of, everybody I know is there, so I feel bad not going sort of convention. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of indispensable at this point. Um, but uh, is there, because I know we've talked previously a lot about you kind of cutting down on conventions, and it's almost like that weird bad habit that you can't kick. Uh, yeah. do, do you it's feel like of, you're stronger this year about it? You think you're actually going to be able to do it properly? I feel well because I've recognized well because last year we did like a dozen cons, maybe, which is crazy. Somewhere between like a dozen and, and fifteen, um, and I just kind of anytime in between when I was like, well, I should write songs. I can't really go on tour unless I have a new album, and nobody's buying the old album, and wah. But it's kind of a pipe dream to think that like, Oh, well in these three weeks between these two conventions, I'll really get into a songwriting rut and I'll really get some stuff done. Like that's, that's never how it works. And I've not had time to worry about the Patreon and I've not had, I just kind of haven't been able to get into a workflow between cons because it takes like a week to ramp down and then a week to ramp back up. And so you kind of don't have any free time really. Yeah. Your energy's all messed up. So I'm trying to get back on the Patreon horse. Um, and I'm trying to get out of debt from the musical. That's all. Once I sell certain, so many copies, I finally have the CD copies of that. So I'm close. I can actually start selling a thing. Okay. You've literally, t- I think in that one conversation, you've touched on every one of my talking points for this podcast. So let's, awesome. we're, we're going to cut back and, and we're going to elaborate on each one of those things. So okay. I'm going to mention um, the musical for starter. So you did the Thanksgiving versus Christmas musical last year, right? Are you... Are we recording now or are you? Oh, yeah. Uh... No, we're gone. All right. <laughs> it was so casual. I kind of was waiting for the, hi, I'm Aaron Fever and today is my. But, um... No, I do the cheesy like thing at the start separately so I don't bother anybody uh, separate it's recording. It's such a good idea, though. Yeah. I um, I just recorded. I was on um, the JV Club with Janet Varney and that's what she does, too. And so she just handed me a mic and said, hi, Molly, how's it going? And I went, 
oh, I'm I'm fine. You know, I'm so used to the like, okay, take a drink of water. Now we're gonna start. Uh, but yeah, no, the the musical you did last year, which uh, you... No, it wasn't that you did it last year. You released it last year and you did the year before. Isn't that right? Yeah, it, we released it in 20... Put it up in November 2014. Now I have to do math. Yeah, 2014. And then I tried to release the album on sort of the one-year anniversary of it going up. Okay. Um, and uh, and there, there were a lot of delays with... I really wanted the um, physical presentation to be a special thing and... I've already done a live album based on my uh, f- from my uh, graduation show that I did, yeah. and so I tried to sort of take that into consideration of like this is not just uh, an album of a show; it also is a sort of a memento of this event that happened. And so there's a one disc version and a two disc version. And my my friend Kay Wiley, who was just generally a magical, talented person, uh, helped me sort of put the templates together, and that was not a thing I'd ever done. Uh, and so the two disc version has like a lyric book and like a photo book. And it's all this very, I, I, we spent a lot of time uh, putting that together. So it, there was some delays on the printing process, but it's finally, it's, it's finally in a garage in Washington somewhere. I just got to go to Kay's <laughs> house and get it. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then this week we're going to ship out all the pre-orders and send it to warehousing. And it's just all this whole, <laughs> I mean, I know Beyonce doesn't have to worry about these things, but it's 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 sort of a new process and i'm enjoying sort of learning like oh well shoot we gotta i've never taken a pre-order before what is that like oh i've never had a shipping party before what does that entail you know so it's a big old learning curve for everybody yeah because you like the the thing you released previously was on D dftba records right yeah that was the first one and i independently released the graduation show one um and i'm assuming and this so- is independent as well right yeah, and it's even more so because um, there's a – well, I didn't collect a pre-order on the graduation show. I just went, surprise, nerds, here it is. Um, and it also didn't involve printing two different versions right. of the show because there's a one-disc musical and a two-disc musical, which is the musical with extra gravy is what we decided to call it. Um, and because, uh, yeah, I, I like DFTBA a lot, but it was kind of a pain in the nuts to um, – you know, find if, if I was doing a show, I needed to email them and be like, "Could you send me another box of CDs? I gotta." And I just kind of, as I was watching, sort of what they were doing. The best, the main, the best thing I got from that relationship was they would front the money for a printing of a thing, okay, and then sort of collect, you know, until until they broke even on the printing, then they would just kind of collect uh, whatever profits, and then the rest would be would be split. And it was really nice and easy. But then I kind of looked up how how do you print a CD? How do you uh, distribute a CD, and I got in touch with the fan-supported network here in Seattle, and they could do all that stuff for me for cheaper and for not being based in Missoula, being based in Seattle instead. So it seemed like a good idea. And I just kind of, because DFTBA at some point was like, we're going to help distribute our artists to iTunes, and we'll take a little split on top of the iTunes split, not a big split. Uh, let us know if you want in. And I and that was, there was a point where I went, no, I can I can do that myself. And I kind of took little steps away from DFTBA sort of in little increments like that, not a big jump out all at once. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I'm kind of, like, there's a reason I'm not in a band. I'm kind of bossy, and I'm, I kind of <laughs> like to be in control of all my stuff uh, as much as I can. So I, it's, I, it would be nice to have someone who could print and ship shirts for me, but I'll figure it out as I go. I kind of like, I, I learn by doing, and that's 
Do you think you're the type of person though that once you kind of figure it out that it's something that you could probably pass on to somebody else to look after then? Or would you rather yeah. be like, would you rather still look after it? A big part of this, this this job has been learning like, oh, I can ask for help. I can <laughs> I can ask someone else to lay out the print template for this. Okay. That's not such a job, it. Molly. That's life. That's a big part of life is learning that you can do that. <laughs> yeah. Like, what do, you, what do you mean I can pay somebody else to lay out this print template? What do you, no, I can pay someone else to master this? That's amazing. Like, <laughs> I, I should have figured that out when I was in school. Like, I can pay someone else to teach me how math works? Okay. <laughs> Well, like, you, you, it's easy to forget just how fecking young you are. It bugs. <laughs> I like the word fecking. That's great. <laughs> it's, but yeah, it, like, because we, I mean, you've, it's always been the butt of the joke, and like, within our group, at least, um, when we're hanging out, that it's, 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 you know, and baby Molly's here, too. Um, look, look at this tall fetus who can drive. That's adorable. Yeah, I know. <laughs> But it's, it is a kind of very – it's amazing just how much you have accomplished because like when – like because you were, you were essentially like playing gigs and being, I would say, a professional like musician while you were still in college. Would you gauge that as correct? Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I, there was um, a visit that I took to – my fir- the first time I came to Seattle was – a quote-unquote site visit to a college, but it was also uh, Colton and Paul and Storm were touring through Seattle, and when they were in L.A., we were going to be out on a family trip, so my dad was like, well, because Colton had reached out to me and was like, hey, would you like to play at one of our shows? We like your songs, and you did a good cover of my song, so let me know whereabouts you live. And when they were coming through L.A., I was going to be out of town. So my dad went, where else are they going to be? You applied to schools elsewhere, right? And so we did this, like, college site visit and that was that was bizarre all around because i was visiting the school that i would end up going to but also i had never played a show for like strangers that had paid for their seats i had only done like school talent shows and stuff and so in this weekend i had figured out like okay so this is the school i want to go to but i also know from this other experience that whatever degree i get from this school i'm probably not going to use you know and it was this really bizarre pull. And I know that Woot's, Woot's stock uh, started when I was 19. And that's a pretty, it, it felt like, oh, this little, you know, this little thing that Paul and Star were putting together. How cute. But it was kind of a big deal. It was, you know, like. But it had Will big crowds. And Adam Savage's audience. Yeah. It was, I kind of had not. That was the reason that I contacted DFTBA in the first place was I went, oh, well, I need to break even on this plane ticket to San Francisco somehow. Hey, Hank, I heard you were starting a record label. And <laughs> we pooped out that first album in you know, like a couple of weeks, just turned it right around. And they were just the song food demos that I had sent to Ken. I didn't spruce them up in any way. Um, and well, just went, cram them all into a CD. I don't know. Ah. So, yeah, so the, the, help me with the timeline then, Cause, because um, Song Fu, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, is was a songwriting competition um, that was hosted at Quicksup Entertainment, um, now known as the thecycallfred.com, uh, which is where I got my stars uh, doing kind of comedy stuff, because well, it's where my first podcast was hosted. Uh, yeah. but it's a little comedy nerd incubator is what it is <laughs> yeah and god god knows we can't get rid of each other now but <laughs> <laughs> we are monkeys on ken's back till the end of time uh but uh so what age what age was you when you were in and and what you in and won that competition i was in i was a freshman in in college um 
And I have like very specific memories of holding up in that dorm room and, you know, either watching results come in or recording my demos. Um, and, uh, I, I wasn't really motivated to get to the end of it. I didn't think I would finish it, but I, <laughs> as I was sort of presented with the increasingly real possibility that I could beat Paul and Storm, right. it just keep too enticing not to follow through on. <laughs> Everybody wants getting... a little bit of glory. <laughs> oh yeah. And they, and, and they're still squashing beef about it. It's adorable. Um, <laughs> and so, uh. And, and I mean, everybody. Hank, Hank Green was in that as well, wasn't he? He was. He, um, he. I remember he won the. He was <laughs> at some point. Uh, he he was sort of the other contender in the sort of amateur bracket. Um, and I remember he won the ten word challenge, and I went, "Well, I got to knuckle down because I want to meet Paul and Storm in the in the final battle. I want to be in the ring." Um, and so I think the next one that came out of that was the Wikipedia song, and then the because those were. Really, still, with the exception of Pete Bite. <laughs> oh, hey <laughs> now. Hey now. <laughs> I know. Oh, tis, tis the season for Pete Biting, though. We're almost to it. That's true. Um, but, uh, God, that song has become just like the bane of my existence. <laughs> I never play it at shows, but people assume, because I wrote it, that I really like Peeps. But, because I have this song, that for the listener, uh, I have a song where the challenge was to write um, a song with 10 different words that you could repeat, but they couldn't be more than 10 different words, right? So, but it was like in a word cloud as well. You had to choose from like a word cloud that Ken gave you, wasn't it? No, it was just pick, make a list of 10 words and only use those 10 words in your lyrics. Ah, he didn't, okay. And so I just kind of thought, because I know I talked to Hank about, because um, his song, his song, his 10 word song is really great. Um, I don't remember what it's called, but it's. Like I know that you know, but you what you think you know, but you don't know what I know, baby. Like that was the whole thing, and it was great. But so I went, what genres lend themselves to that kind of brevity? Oh, I know heavy metal. So I yeah, wrote and, a, what, this, and, what, and what musical instrument lends itself to heavy metal? The ukulele. Better than ukulele, I know. And I, I think it's because I'd gotten cocky because with the the first challenge was write a happy song, and I was like, well, I play ukulele, so I don't really have to even try. Yeah, I've already got this. But then I had to, then I wrote a heavy metal song in the next one, so it shows what I know. Um, but so I wrote a song about you know putting peeps in the microwave and putting toothpicks in them, so that as you microwave them, they inflate kind of Mr. Creosote like and sword fight each other. Um, and I think that is the only use case for peeps. I don't think that they are edible. Oh, they're ter- um, they're terrible. Someone gave one to me once because they're not available over here. But when I was visiting the states, someone uh, said, "Here, you should try these. They're American." And it was biting into styrofoam. <laughs> Like, really is what it was. <laughs> you really should think twice when someone says, here, try these. They're American. That's not a seal of quality. <laughs> uh, yeah, like, they're, they're, they taste like dye more than anything, right? They just taste like food dye. Yeah. Uh, they just taste like, well, they taste like shampoo smells. And, um, and, and I don't think that they're edible, but people keep, because there's, like, year-round peeps now. There's, like, a whole calendar of peeps. There's, like, Christmas peeps and Halloween peeps. And like, I don't know, like vernal equinox peeps, who cares? Like there's peeps in every shape for every month. And so at shows, very well-meaning, nice people will give me peeps. And I'm like, well, these will never go bad. So I don't have to worry about eating them in a time frame. But I'm also never going to eat them. What yeah. am I going to? And the, the peep-shaped peeps are the only ones that work for sword fighting. You can't sword fight two of those tree-shaped ones. You know, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. 
I feel like you just have to start a YouTube series of ways to like destroy peeps, like to blow them up or something like that. Oh, or... just various. Yeah, basically just Mythbusters, but with peeps. Yeah. Like, first we microwave them, then we freeze them and drop them from a great height, then we run over them with a car. Exactly. And we shoot them into space. Yeah. <laughs> what happens just when you tie one to a battle rocket? Like, let's see what happens. <laughs> just different arenas. It's because it's peep versus peep, and then uh, peep versus everything. Um, <laughs> Man versus peep. <laughs> Heat versus gravity. Uh, so, so Song Fu, that was before Rootstock. Was that when you got to meet Paul and Storm, essentially? No, I met Paul and Storm. Uh, I, I met Paul and Storm when uh, Colton invited me to do the show in Seattle. Okay, so that was before I, that. Yeah, that was April of 2008. Um, and Song Fu was, I guess, in the fall of 2008 when I had been accepted to the college I had been visiting during the Colton Paul and Storm trip. Oh, uh, okay. Um, so we'd only recently met, um, but I felt, I guess I felt comfortable enough that, or I guess I had met them once and that was enough to make the, the Song Fu rivalry personal, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, like one meeting with Paul Saborn and you want to beat him. <laughs> uh, we love you, Paul, kind of. Uh, so, <laughs> so you, cause you got, would you say you got your start on YouTube? I, well, yeah, I were it not for YouTube, I wouldn't have even considered this as a career path because I, the songs I wanted to write, I just assumed there was not an audience for, and I kind of assumed that the the Weird Al's and the Tom Lehrers had cornered the market on comedy songs. Right. And then when I found like They Might Be Giants and Jonathan Colton and Paul and Storm, I sort of went, oh, there's like a whole, there's a whole like gamut, there's a whole you know, sort of gradient of comedy nerd music that is currently being made. And so I I knew that there was an audience for that kind of music, but I didn't think that audience could apply to me. And um, then I did, actually it was the ukulele cover of Toxic, because I did that at my school talent show, and word got around the campus, and my friends that weren't at the, at the talent show heard about it and went, hey, we heard that you did this Britney Spears thing on ukulele, we really want to hear it, you should bring your ukulele to school and play it for us at lunch. And that terrified, just like, no, I will not, I'm not going to busk for you. Yeah. No, that's not how this works. And so I posted, I recorded a video and put it on YouTube and sent it to them and went, here you go. So I'm not going to play it for you at school, but this will have to do. And then one of my friends posted it to dig and it went, yoink, half a million views, just like in a couple of days. Yikes. And, and so all these people had showed up. I had like my subscriber numbers jumped and, you know, I just kind of went, oh, Holy crap! And there now there are these people here, who was, are expecting was, more music. Yeah, what? Well, I was just gonna say, was that like that must have been yeah, that must have been scary as a teenager mm-hmm. to be kind of getting all that kind of attention at once because it wasn't and, like you said, it wasn't something that you were planning on. You weren't hoping to get a lot of hits on YouTube. You weren't uh, designing oh, yeah. to become famous from it. So to kind of accidentally fall into that must have been a thrilling, but also scary as fuck at the same time. Oh, yeah. Like when I was like in, you know, junior high, I was sort of in like the They Might Be Giants fan communities on, you know, sort of on like the forums and on the live journals and stuff. And so I had already been told for years and years up to that point that, you know, be careful about who you give your information to. Don't show your face. Don't tell them your real name. That kind of or, you know, you'll get kidnapped. Yeah. Was basically what every sort of young girl gets told on the Internet. 
And uh, so in that toxic video, my face is not there because I assumed if someone sees my face and then sees me on the street, I'll get abducted. You know, like that was just my that's just what I'd been told. And uh, but all these people showed up and I think there were like, you know, the were like the five awesome girls. And there were all these like girl vloggers that were kind of on the scene who had seemingly gone for years without having been kidnapped. So I went, well, coast is probably clear for me. <laughs> so, uh, so I had the song about MySpace, which I posted and figured like maybe the people that showed up for this Britney Spears thing will be into this. And then they were. And that was weird. And so then I posted. I already had had the idea for the Lisa Noack song, but in the capacity of like. Someone should write a song about this lady. Someone should tell Jonathan Colton to write a song about this lady. And then it had it occurred to me like, oh, I, I could write that song. Mm. Oh, you know, and so um, did that. And it was bizarre, like going into college, feeling like, well, I've got this whole life on the Internet that I can't tell my real life friends about. You know, it was sort of this Hannah Montana kind of split. <laughs> you never thought about wearing the wig, no? Oh, I mean, I, I did, but I had I had a lot of hair back then. There was no way I could get a wig to fit. <laughs> Uh, it's, yeah, it's kind of, it was, that was an age then, because that was around 2007 or so. Yeah. And I felt like that was a beautiful time on the internet where I think things like, you know, YouTube and podcasting were still quite, they were around, but they were still pretty new. Like, not everybody was doing it at that point. So it was an opportunity to, like, I think people were... Like it wasn't celebrities weren't doing blog, vlogging and celebrities weren't doing podcasting very much at that point. So the random yeah. person had an opportunity to pick up followers at that time in a way that yeah, is not really available now. And sort of mainstream outlets were not taking YouTube seriously mm. as like Justin Bieber, I think, had been discovered through YouTube. And that was kind of a novel thing. Like, oh, can you imagine they found this kid on the internet? You know, like... Yeah, it was around the same time that the Arctic Monkeys had been found on MySpace and people were freaking out about a band being found on MySpace as well. I didn't know they were found on MySpace. That's adorable. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Everyone talked about how they were MySpace hits. (laughs) (laughs) That is... Well, that's the one thing MySpace was built for, so I'm glad some decent band cut was able to leverage that. Um, and how prophetic now that uh, MySpace song has become. The more and more years that go by, the more like kind of eerily accurate it is. Oh yeah, I had a friend like this week who was like, "Oh, I went, I forgot my MySpace password and went in there, and it was all my former marriage and my the birth of my first child. So that's cool, I guess." And I was like, "I told you, I told you, you would this one happen." Um, you talked about before about uh, kind of songwriting and and kind of just from personal conversations we've had you've talked about just how difficult you find kind of getting songs out sometimes can be mm-hmm. like what what do you think like your personal block on that is do you think it's just like a, an attentive attention thing or inspiration well i mean it's, it's sort of my my goal as a songwriter has always been like i've always thought that there are a lot of songs about love and finding love and losing love and feeling deceived by lovers you know and all that stuff and some of those songs are really good but i feel like there's enough of them that i don't need to contribute to that pile right Um, and so i want to write songs about literally anything else um and uh and i and there's you know there are like ballads like made up stories that are compelling but i think there's a lot of true stories that and songwriting is an interesting sort of storytelling medium Songwriting is an interesting storytelling medium, and so um, I would like to be able to tell those stories, things that really happen. And I've been, t- I've started taking notes when I watch QI. Like that's kind of where I'm at. Um, but uh, 
the the thing that kind of chokes me up with the songwriting process is for the songs I'd like to write, there is a lot of research involved. Like Road Trip was actually a pretty intensely researched song. Yeah. Um, even if it doesn't sound like it. And the Lincoln song was fairly researched. And the songs that I'm proudest of took a lot of sort of book work before they could become a song shape. And it's also, I think I, sp- I spend a lot of time sort of agonizing over the specific way that w- the words fit together um, to the point that there's sort of this spark you have to kind of contain when you go, oh, I should write a song about whatever it is. And I'll start to write down words and I'll start to kind of go, well, maybe this is, it'll kind of feel like it'll kind of feel like this other song that exists, but I'll put my twist on it. Um, and then, are you okay? Did something fall down? No, a, 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 a housemate left the house and the, the oh, loud shit. front door that we have. Oh, Not a bookshelf fell over or something. No. Um, but no, it's it's just kind of my my songwriting process takes so long and i kind of it's actually not it's the opposite of inattention it's that i focus real hard on like no i gotta make this stanza work but it doesn't serve the whole you know it, I, I don't think about the big picture yeah you can get focused on the minutiae and uh yeah, yeah and lose and the rest of it you, you sort of run out of steam right like oh if your wind is taken out of your sails yeah it can be tough what you were kind of describing as a thing that slows you down when you're songwriting is kind of, I also think, what I really like about your songwriting is because you can you can see the work that's gone into the wordplay quite clearly, <laughs> you know, and also just, uh, the, like you said, the details that are in it. Because I, th- I still think the Lincoln song stands up to pretty much, you know, any song, like, writing, like, I've ever heard, you know what I mean? Thank you. Yeah, uh, it's it's just uh, to to, and I know it was that was a song food challenge that like, you were asked to write a song. Uh, what was it challenge detail? It was to just have a song with more than one melody. It was a uh, it was actually a really great prompt. It was write a song that has three distinct um, and separate musical parts, like Bohemian Rhapsody. You know how it kind of goes from a mini song into another kind of mini song, and it's just kind of. And I think Paul and Storm interpreted the challenge in another really interesting way, which is they made a tiny musical. They made a musical about Frogger. And so there's sort of the like love song and there's the expository song and there's the like victory song and sort of all the little staple pieces yeah. in a musical. They kind of made a, a very, they kind of made a medley. Yeah, they did. Sort of a the overture of a larger Frogger musical. Um, <laughs> yeah. But what I, what I really appreciate at yours was that you said, okay, I'm going to tell a story from three distinct points of view in one building. And yeah. It, it worked out really, really well. <laughs> Thank you. I actually, but when I had written that song, I had not heard, uh, the, today as we're doing this interview, it is Stephen Sondheim's birthday. Um, and when I wrote my Lincoln song, I had not heard his John Wilkes Booth song. Uh, the Ballad of Booth from Assassins. But as someone who has written a song about the Lincoln assassination, let me just say it is it is choice. It is some choice Lincoln assassination material. Oh, I don't know it either, so I'm going to have to look that up. Yeah, look up the version with uh, Victor Garber because uh, there's other ones with like Neil Patrick Harris and stuff, but they're not... I don't like them as much. Yeah, no, I understand. Um, but yeah, that's a... Your interest in Lincoln is a long-standing thing, right? It's actually, as I was... Because here's the thing about Song Fu. It was in this rare moment in my life when I was finishing the books that I started. Um, I think because I was a freshman in college and I was very <laughs> optimistic about how many books I could read. Um, but the Mr. T song was written because I was reading Mr. T's autobiography at the time. 
and just found it. His attitude is almost Trump-like in its self-delusion, but he's his heart's in a better place than Trump's. Right. Um, he loves his mama. <laughs> he loves his mama. He wants to set a good example for the children. And, you know, it's I just I just really wanted to crawl inside his head for a bit and, <laughs> and, and look out through his eyes. And so I did that in that song. Um, but so when I wrote the Lincoln song, I was I had just finished Assassination Vacation by Sarah Vowell. Um, and she talks about because that that the Lincoln song that I wrote sort of started at the booth verse and then radiated out in either direction because she kind of talks about like Booth's journal is is archived somewhere the journal that he kept while he like post assassination like as he was running and uh and he felt deceived he felt like I was supposed to be the hero everybody was complaining about this dude and I did something about it and now I'm the bad guy and I found that really compelling I I I really kind of cuz nobody thinks that they're the villain in their own story everybody thinks they're the hero and yeah um, I really wanted to, I also wanted to crawl into his head for a bit. And so um, I took the, the song Foo Challenge as, because it was really more a fascination with Booth than it was with Lincoln that fueled that song. Oh, okay. Um, and just kind of, because the, 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 the great and also scary thing about people is they can convince themselves of anything, you know, and that was, I, I saw that at work. That's what's also, that's what I like about the Lisa Nolak song, the, my song Road Trip. Um because she was convinced that she was going to be the hero and she was doing the right thing and she was going to get her man and it kind of came undid right in front of her. Um, and for some reason, I find those kind of deranged, smart people compelling. Is that weird? No, I think I, but I think that's uh, obsession is a common um, theme in a lot of kind of stuff like that. Uh, and it's kind of funny because I know, uh, I know your love of Hamilton, and I think we might talk about that before the podcast is over. Uh, but I know uh, be, with how this song, with how that the Lincoln song plays out, and then also you know when you wrote the the Thanksgiving versus Christmas musical, you're it it makes sense because if you look at those, like if you look at Lincoln, it's almost like a musical number. In the sense, you could see it being acted out. You could see it being performed by three different actors on in, on a stage. You know. That'd be really cool. It would it would be fun to actually see that perform that way sometime. But I what I I find particularly wonderful because I got I've been see, I've seen you perform live a number of times now, um, and I always enjoy the Link one because when you when you hit to that uh, bullet beat, and there's just an awe around the crowd of like oh shit, <laughs> she went there. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing to see someone bomb a whole crowd out. <laughs> And it's that's why I like to to start with it um, because I feel it kind of sets the table for like you're gonna get some comedy you're gonna kind of have some feels yeah. <laughs> and let me just put those all in one song and throw it at you and then after that we're all friends <laughs> we can move <laughs> forward. Do you uh, do you find though that it, there's a because I talked to Seth Boyer about this in the fact that like he. So he finds it difficult to explain his genre of music to people sometimes. Like if people ask him, like, what kind of music do you play? And he's kind of like, because uh, this is some, it could be, you you could say so many different, you know, uh, variety of, of uh, identifications for his music. And I think you're a tough one to nail down as well if you're explaining to someone what you do. Yeah. It, is is that something that because you know when you book gigs and when you when you kind of have to promote yourself the way you do does that something that you find difficult? It's 
I mean, usually I haven't had to book a lot of my own gigs because the process scares me. But um, <laughs> a lot of times I will, I will tour with, you know, the double clicks and their pitch is, you know, also you know, their songs are about all kinds of things like self-esteem and Mr. Darcy and dinosaurs and, you know, body confidence. Um, and I, you know, how do you, how do you approach that? But yeah. they, I, we actually, um, we were waiting for an elevator once and this dude saw that we had guitars and cellos and stuff. And he was like, Oh, what kind of music do you play? And she just went feminist nerd comedy music and got in the elevator and went away. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, there you go. Nailed it in one. How about that? Um, and so I, I think I have the same sort of strategy that Marianne call has where she just kind of describes like, if you like, these five things, you might like me. I'm kind of in the Venn diagram of all those. And so I don't know what the elements in my Venn diagram are, but I know like if you like Marion Call and you like the double clicks and you like Tom Lehrer and you like Jonathan Colton, then maybe I'm I might be your cup of tea. Yeah. If you listen um, to them on Spotify, you'll come up as a related artist. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Man, I was at a party once where um my music was in the Spotify party mix and I had to like leave the room. It was really uncomfortable and it's hard to describe to people why that's so uncomfortable for me i know i know we, we spoke about that i spoke about it with seth again um about that idea because uh it's he he was saying that what bugs him when he hears it is that like uh he wants to hear all of the things that he would like to do differently like yeah. if he had a chance to record it again he'd like to like maybe play this guitar riff slightly differently or like master the track slightly differently because i know my hatred of hearing myself sometimes is just like just hearing my own voice but that must be a different experience if you're a musician because you have to you know listen to yourself because you have to make sure you're in tune for example mm-hmm. uh, well and it's Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, like, is 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 what, what I was going to narrow my question. I guess is that what what exactly is it that like do you think that it gets to you the most when you hear it? Oh, it's well, it's a number of of things because, well, it was kind of a unique situation because it was the first the Little Brown album, the DFTBA release, right? Um, and like I said, a lot of the tracks on that album were the song Foo demos, and those demos are like the first time I. Like when I was in my computer writing the lyrics down and went, okay, this song's complete. I better record it now. And so they're like, most of them are really the first pass I had ever taken at that song as a complete thing. And now I've played them so many times and I kind of know their ins and outs and I know what the laugh lines are and kind of how to play each line. Mm. And so when I listen to my actual performance of it, it sounds you know, like these songs are old friends now. And when I recorded those, I had just met them, if that makes sense. Yeah. And um, and then there's also like I didn't I just recorded into one mic like in a library somewhere. So the sound is not as good as I would like it to be. I didn't know what mastering was. I didn't know what compression was. And so they sound just incredibly raw and amateur from a, a production standpoint. And then like with some of them, I just hear the work of a younger person. And if I had approached that song prompt now and written that song now, I would have done some things differently, you know, and um, it's just it's several different levels of you know both technical and creative embarrassment you know because <laughs> your your voice is even you know you were it's nearly 10 years ago now that some of the stuff was done so like literally it was a younger voice <laughs> yeah and it just like sort of the, the ukulele playing on those songs has gotten more nuanced as i've played them and you know, just again, like there's sort of a, it, it lacks a finesse that I feel I've earned now from rec- from playing those songs so much. And 
I don't even have like enough of an affection for most of those songs that I would want to revisit them and like do them justice. I feel like they just get that's just a thing that happens at the live shows. Um, and I don't. I wish that I could crank out songs more often because the double clicks have the luxury of you know because they did the song foo the second song foo maybe the third one that Ken did, and so they got twelve new songs out of that year and they're very good about and very disciplined about like okay we're gonna have songwriting time today and. So they have this big catalog of songs, and if they get tired of a song, they can just rotate in a new one. But my catalog's not that big, so I'm kind of stuck with songs that I wouldn't play at these shows if I had just written them, you know. And mm. I, and so I really need to get on the stick of writing more stuff so that I can sort of dismiss some of the older stuff. Well, you've snuck in, like in the last year or two, you've snuck in, I'd say, about a half dozen new songs to uh, to what I know of your live set. Uh, like Johnny Dicklegs, for example. Big hit. It's big been hit. a big hit. Yeah, I love it. Um, so, I mean, I, I reckon you're close to having an album's worth of material now of new stuff, right? I know that I've talked to Seth about, uh, because we don't have to print our albums onto CDs anymore, there's no reason to make a 12-track release every time. Like, yeah. If you just release a little short thing on Bandcamp, um, cause that's what he, what he's been doing lately is like little, you know, three to five track EPs mm. for, you know, a, bu- a buck a track and you can crank those out a lot faster. And then you can also, you don't have to write like a concept album can be way shorter than it had to be 10 years ago, you know? Right. And I have sort of ideas for like, I would like to write a mini musical about this and maybe I'd like to write a concept album about this. I, I, I like the concept of the album, the musical album, and I don't want that to go away, but I also kind of recognize like people don't have the patience for a long form listen like they used to um and, or maybe they do because a lot of my favorite podcasts are like an hour and a half long so i'm trying to sort of figure out like where you know how how to sort of creatively adapt to the way people listen to music now um yeah i find and, a lot of people uh, and I, I include myself on this is that it, the having uh the shuffle option on their ipod is kind of almost permanently locked yeah, and so it's the song. And we're, yeah, albums are now the kind of, Oh yeah, no, we're the kind of boogers now that have like we have a record player and like a bunch of Ben's very good at that sort of thing because uh, there's all these you you can't just plug a record player into speakers apparently there's like amps and preamps involved and so he's figured that out so I don't have to but I really like the record listening experience for if for no other reason is like once you set the needle down it's extra work if you want to skip a track you know you have to sort of you know have to find it on the fucking record for the rest of the you have to kind of play battleship with your just doink and and then there's and also like a, a a vinyl record kind of divides into an act one and an act two in a way that i hadn't considered before it just kind of forces you to you know kind of meditate on how to put an album together and how it's not just the original songs there's kind of a whole that's larger than the sum of its parts and so now I'm the kind of booger that will tell you why vinyl records are so great, as we've just demonstrated. <laughs> you well, you didn't moan to me a bit for 20 minutes about how the sound is just so much better. No, though it's I've I've never bought like there's no like well I guess they're on on iTunes is there kind of an equivalent to like well what's in the bargain bin like it's, I, I, they may have a sale section maybe yeah I don't know if it's like tracks what? for like 69 cents instead of 99 cents and <laughs> all that stuff but like. I bought like an entire. I bought Archie Bell and the Drells uh, tighten up for like three dollars, and uh, you can do that on iTunes. There's no, 
There's no just like, oh, well, I found this box in my, in it, like under the shelves in a record store. And they're just like, take it. It was amazing. Um, and yeah, you can't, you can't do that with, yeah, you'll be able to do that with CDs very soon. I'm sure. Like you can go into any Goodwill and find James Taylor, but I'll, <laughs> I, can I tell you something, speaking of Hamilton, <laughs> Ryan. I had this weird experience where, cause Ben is sort of an audiophile and understands high fidelity audio in a way that I don't. Um, but he really wanted to, he, so he's got like the nice headphones that you can really hear the stereo mix and it's, it's great. Um, and he was like, oh, I'm going to go buy Hamilton on CD because the quality is better than MP3. And I had this weird moment where like, that's what people used to say about vinyl when vinyl was a thing. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, vinyl's better quality than CD. And so I just kind of had this moment where like I coughed and a moth came out, you know, like just I felt the wheels of progress kind of click forward by one rung. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Everything just repeats itself, doesn't it? It's a big old loop. But uh, so yeah, so Hamilton. Um, I'm going. What I'm going to do because we. It's been a big part of your life recently. I think anybody who follows you on Twitter will know this. <laughs> I think my latest tweet right now is a Hamilton joke. <laughs> so uh, we put out on uh, Twitter uh, a while back. Uh, if anybody wanted to shoot any questions at you, and like I think the second question we got was a Hamilton question. So I might as well start uh, bleeding some of these into our conversation now. So uh, Elena, um, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, asks, what's your favorite song from Hamilton? You'll be back, question mark. That cover got me into Hamilton, by the way, she says. Oh, well, I mean, I definitely when I first listened to Hamilton, I was I was in Northampton for a convention um, and they they put our hotel in the part of Northampton that the convention wasn't. And I just didn't have the danger to get up and get on a bus and go to this con. So I just hung around Northampton for a few days and it was great. But um, so I bought Hamilton, downloaded it on hotel Wi-Fi and I listened to act one the day it came out. And then I was like so emotionally wrecked that I had to save act two for the next day. (laughs) But the two tracks that I definitely listened to a couple dozen times before I could move to the next one were uh, you'll be back. Uh, which is when I was like, I'm in, whatever, I, I will follow this man off a cliff. Um, but also Satisfied, uh, Angelica's number. Okay. Um, because it just, I I mean, it, if it weren't apparent, if it wasn't apparent from uh, the Lincoln song, I really like songs that approach a story from two separate angles. Right. Um, and that's what Helpless and Satisfied do to each other. Mm. And just, I, I I'm not the kind of... Hamilton fan that knows the names of everybody on the cast and everybody in the choir. But the woman who plays Angelica is amazing. Uh, just like she can just kind of write in cursive with her voice, if that makes sense. It's really incredible. <laughs> um, and so so I definitely listened to that one, uh, you know, maybe a couple dozen times before I could move on. Just like, well, I got to carve a niche in my brain for this song to fit and live in. Before, so before, before Hamilton came along, what was your musical of, you know, that sat in your heart as your favorite? Um, well, I, I mean, I'm a big Sondheim fan and I, I was kind of raised in a Sondheim household, if that makes sense. Um, and I actually, I just, ha- I had a friend who he needs to know a lot about musicals for this work project that he's doing. And so he was like, Hey, you know, musicals, can you write me a big, big list? And so it made me sort of think about like, what musicals have I listened to and why why are, why do I think they're important and what sort of influence have they had on me? But I know when I was a kid, I watched the movie version of Cats 
until the tape broke. <laughs> like a lot of like Andrew Lloyd Webber, which as I look back on it now, as a person who now writes songs for a living, Andrew Lloyd Webber is just a crazy person. It's amazing. Yeah. He's, like, he's pretty nuts. I didn't, because I, the entire Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, like with Donny Osmond, that one is on YouTube for your full consumption. <laughs> I think it has subtitles that are in like Belgian or something, but wow. the all the singing is still in English. And I was trying to sort of pace through like, for this this primer that I wrote for my friend, just like, well, okay, so you should probably listen to Jacob and Sons and maybe you should listen to, and I'm paging through and going, what? Ha- I don't remember this part. What's happening here? What the, what? And just like, it's, and I, I gave like a list of Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals and went, well, these are all bonkers for different reasons. So it just depends on what kind of bonkers you're in the mood for that day. He covers the whole spectrum. Um, but I mean, I, I liked those when I was a child and had a child's understanding of how musical theater worked. And, you know, adults romping around like cats did not seem weird to me when I was, you know, six years old. Right. Um, but uh, it's like when we're teenagers and we think Limp Bizkit is like a legitimate like yeah. m- musical band. <laughs> when like the Beastie Boys are a little too hard for you, you know. Um, but like I like I've seen Into the Woods probably a hundred times now. I've um, I, I actually did when I was in AP music theory in high school. My final project was about company and breaking down why company is important. And um and just like a lot, because Sondheim, I, f- I really like rhymes and I sort of take pride in the way my songs rhyme mm. internally. And I feel that good rhymes sit on this gamut, this sort of spectrum where on one end you have Stephen Sondheim's rhymes, which they fit together so seamlessly that it kind of blows your mind that nobody thought to rhyme these two things together before. You know, like there's... um. There, like, there's this song that I made my mom sing for my graduation show um, that's, I think it's like some really deep cut from, you know, Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum or something. Okay. But there's, um, I, I'm going to have to look up what musical it was actually from, but there's this uh, turn where they go, in the depths of her interior were fears she was inferior or something even eerier, but no one dared to query her superior exterior. Like Nice. Just like, there's sort of this... There's like how many rhymes are in there and you just they're so good that you kind of go, oh, fuck you, Stephen Sondheim. How dare you? <laughs> also, happy birthday, Stephen Sondheim. Um, and then on the other end is the Tom Lehrer rhymes where they rhyme and it is such a admirable stretch of the imagination to get those words to rhyme. And it's just so kind of sweaty, like the like my pulse will be quickening with each drop of stricken in like like, yeah. oh, you. When he says stricken and you go, oh, I see how, I see what you did there. I see what you did there, Tom, you know, but they're both good. They're just good in very sort of, one's really cheeky and one's just so seamless and, and deft. Um, and so, and so, yeah, sometimes, and sometimes character pieces are really just beyond reproach. You know, his, the little sort of monologues and little sort of turns and just the way that his music kind of suits um, like your fault from into the woods is a really good example of like the music kind of sounds like people shouting at isn't my fault. I was given those beans. You persuaded me to trade away my cow for beans and without those beans, you know, like yeah. that's what it sounds like when you're tense and, and arguing with somebody. And, um, and I mean, he's so trained and I'm so not trained. So it's just, he's just kind of like, 
he's the, the the monk at the top of the thousand steps and I'm still trying to work up those thousand steps to get to that level, you know? I remember the first time I kind of realized that the uh, the geek and uh, theater community have such a crossover because, like, I don't know, I guess in my own circles, I wasn't aware of it until I went to my first Dragon Con, I think, and yeah. just seeing people just react to different kind of like you know musical references on panels and stuff like that if anyone even just mentioned one and people would just kind of get really excited about it and you'd hear oh, a few yeah. people in the crowd and i was like oh okay there's a there's a big kind of joint there's an intersection here in these in this venn diagram oh yeah like i feel like a lot of like because i definitely listened to the rent soundtrack from top to bottom when i was kind of because i feel like rent and spring awakening both were kind of these these soundtracks that weirdos in high school took sort of comfort in of like, look at these, these weirdos and they're sort of weird problems. And, you know, there's, there's sort of this angst and this sort of existential dread about those soundtracks that I think a lot of people connected to. And I've actually not seen a lot of musicals, but I've listened to a lot of musical soundtracks, which is kind of, <laughs> I think why my musical took the shape that it did. Cause it was very much just a live recording of a soundtrack. Yeah, well, that's why it worked for a uh, release as a recording then. Yeah, I also don't know that many dancers or people that can memorize things, so it was really the best case scenario. That's Well, we you do know Joseph Scrimshaw, and we've both seen him dance, um, so we are aware he can be brought on to task if needed. I've also seen Sarah Scrimshaw dance. She's very gifted as a dancer, which should come as a, a surprise to nobody. She's good at everything <laughs> all right so i'll go through a few of these other uh, twitter questions uh while i have in front of me here so um some of them are quick enough so steve penny um asked will uh, we both be at dragon con this year i can answer yes i can also answer yes my oh. plans aren't firm but i've cleared out that weekend <laughs> yeah we're available so I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna find a way to get there uh, um mega thruster um, is, Hi, Mega Thruster. Hey, Mega Thruster. It's always a nice uh, way to talk to somebody. <laughs> Mega Thruster. Uh, ask what she thinks of the rumors of changing the theme of Tower of Terror at DCA from Twilight Zone to Guardians of the Galaxy. Ooh, I mean, I'm more concerned about. I mean, I guess because the, they already overhauled um, Star Tours to be to include like the prequel canon and to eh. so. It it doesn't surprise me. I, I imagine I, I know there were rumors about turning DCA entirely into a Pixar park. Um, which they sort of they have like the cars land and the bugs land and stuff. But I can't imagine and they, I guess there's a whole Toy Story area now, but it kinda makes sense that they would start to fold in Marvel stuff because the Pixar movies do fine. They do fine by movie standards, but the Marvel things are like shattering records. Right. So it just seems like the natural progression. And they've got rid of Muppet Vision, which um, we have not heard the end of from Ken. It's a disappointment <laughs> to all of us. Um, uh, you, you really, like, because you, you grew up in California, so that makes sense that you had easy access to, you know, Disney. Is it Disney World or Disneyland on that side of the world? Uh, Disneyland is on the West Coast and Disney World is on the East Coast. Okay, so Disney, you had, you know, spoke at length in the past about how many times you went to Disneyland and how you knew yes. the Star Tours off by heart and all that kind and of stuff. And that's jazz. sort of the undercurrent of every time I talk to Disney, uh, talk to Ken about Disney. I almost yeah. called him Disney. Because uh, he's, he's, <laughs> he he's, a, he's, a, he's a Disney World guy and I'm a Disneyland person, and I very much believe that Disney World is where they test things that then go to Disneyland. Because okay. the, there's, there's a sort of finite amount of space, and I like that Disneyland is so compact and accessible and navigable 
and Disney World feels it feels just like it's too much. Like you don't need to make you don't need to make Epcot an entire attraction of its of its own. You need to distill it down to its best parts. Why do you have so much crap? Um, so Disney World and, is Disney Beta and Disney yeah, is Disney and, Alpha. But every t- every time we go, because I've been to Disneyland with Ken a number of times now, and he always manages to get in how like well they do this thing differently at Disney World, and I'm like I don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, uh, isn't that yeah, isn't that indicative of most of our conversations with Ken? <laughs> well, I mean, I normally give a shit about. Like, Here's some Disney trivia you didn't know. Great. Uh, well, at Disney World, they'd make an ice cream sandwich out of brioche bread. Who cares? We're not there right now. <laughs> Sticking to my guns. Uh, speaking of Ken, he did send us a tongue in cheek question. Um, mm-hmm. I would also like. Hi, Ken. Um, he won't listen. Uh, I would also like to know what your favorite color is when painting a small bathroom. Ooh. Uh, well, I've never painted a small bathroom, but I, hypothetically, I will say Cerulean. Deal with that. Because <laughs> it's just a fun name to say, right? It's, it's up there with chartreuse. <laughs> oh, it is. I, I still like turquoise. Um, it's just, it makes me, there's something about the, the quoise that makes me feel quite happy. We're kind of in the same, like, 10% of the color wheel right here. <laughs> These colors. How about taupe? How do you feel about taupe? I still don't quite know what taupe is. I think taupe is kind of, there's taupe and there's mauve, and I understand they're not the same color. <laughs> I think mauve is like maroon. I don't know why I'm associating those two in my head. I know. I think it's kind of purpley. I think you're in the right. We're in the right sort of quadrant of okay. the color wheel. <laughs> At some point, I will be interviewing a professional uh, comic colorist on this podcast. I'll be sure to ask her all these questions. Oh yes. <laughs> um, and then I think finally for Twitter questions, we have Amanda who uh, who asks. Hey uh, Amanda. Hey Amanda. It's, it's it's. I feel like we're on a radio show now. Um, <laughs> So irrational fears are a good thing for you two to talk about. So not necessarily a question, but a subject matter. Oh, <laughs> so what would be your? Uh, 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 would you would you recognize that you have an irrational fear about anything? I mean, I I think it depends on because again, the thing about people is you can rationalize almost anything, whether or not you're correct about it. <laughs> and I think myself uh, and yourself are both the type of people who are very good at overthinking something. I think as well. Oh yeah, no, that is my bread and butter. I've, yeah. Um, no, I have lots of. I mean, I would say they're, I don't know if they're irrational or unfounded. Like, I'm afraid of guns, you know? I think that's pretty rational. Yeah, I, I mean, I live in America, so it's, I, I since, a, since childhood, I've had kind of an irrational, I won't say a fear, but sort of an aversion to jewelry. Okay. Just in general. I don't like to be near it or touch it. Um, if other people are wearing it and it is secure on their bodies, then fine. But, like, when my grandma moved out of her house into the house she has now, um, we dug through all of the drawers in her house and it had, cause she raised three daughters in that house. And so there were little lost earrings just everywhere. And it just gave me the heebies to, to touch them. I don't know. I don't know if it's a germ thing or what it is, but like, especially like chains or like any sort of jewelry with like hardware, like to hold a little rock or whatever. Okay. Um, just don't like to touch it. Like, and when I touch it, I can feel it, it feels like. I can still kind of feel its imprint on my hand until I scrub my hands, you know? I can kind of understand that. I have a, a similar but different one where um, my toenails, I, if, if so, anybody touches them, I freak the fuck out. Really? But yeah. your, finger, well, your fingernails are fine. I guess you wouldn't be a functional person if your fingernails couldn't touch anything. Yeah, no. It's, it's not even so much if my toenails touch something because if I like rub my, like, the, the top of my toes against like, my blanket at night or whatever, I'm fine. Yeah. 
but if like an outside person touches them so like say for example like you know myself and my girlfriend are asleep and you know her foot touches off my toenails my whole body jerks and i like wow. it takes me like a minute to calm down um and i know because uh, it was mentioned on twitter earlier on uh through mutual friends that uh i for years couldn't clip my toenails um with a with a toenail clipper because i was convinced i was going to pull my toenails off okay uh, yeah i can see that yeah. Um, so I, I, I so, so what did you do? Sand them down? Like, how did you get around I, that? I bit my toenails. Wow! No, that's impressive. <laughs> but so I, was, I imagine you're I'm not six a foot big... tall. I'm six foot tall, which is not easy to get those toenails in my mouth. I imagine you're not a big sandals wearer. Then never worn any in my life. And yeah, w- will I never. Can't imagine. Yeah. Yeah, and I actually feel nervous if I'm around someone who is wearing tone uh, with sandals because I'm convinced something's going to happen to their toenails. Yeah. So. Well, I it, it just on back on irrational fears. I I know that I'm one of those people that when I find out there's a new way I could die, I look around for like. You know, like, oh, what's the Zika virus? I'm about to go on a cruise. Am I going to get Zika virus? And so, like, this last Yoko cruise, I actually did not go outside. Like, even a little, even at all. Are you serious? I went, we, I walked to the back of the boat with some of my friends, and I stood outside for the lifeboat drill, and that was it. Because I was so, like, I just, and I mean, I didn't, I didn't really read up about it. I didn't really read up about, like, (laughs) is it likely that I will get this? I just went, I'm kind of in the part of the world where this is a problem. I'm just going to play it safe, you know? Fair enough. Um, I mean, it, you could you could successfully say that you were right because you didn't get it. I yeah. I mean, no, nothing ventured, nothing gained. But I did not get Zika virus, as far as I know. <laughs> uh, I think I would know by now. Um, yeah. And that's just kind of always how I've been. Like I remember um, in second when I was in second grade, which must have been woof, like nineteen ninety eight. Um, Fuck there you. was. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't help it. Um, but I. Um, there, there was some report on the news about, you know, we were just kind of, I, I mean, I was a child, so I didn't have a complete understanding of world affairs, but I saw something on the, on like CNN about how the, there had been some sort of on our side force that had gone to Iraq. I'm going to assume it was like the UN or something. And they had found like not mustard gas, but, or not nerve gas, but evidence that they could make nerve gas if they wanted to. And I was, you know, eight years old and I went, well, what's nerve gas? What does that do? And they said, you know, and they could make enough nerve gas to kill half the people on the earth. And that was a lot for me to take in. But I was like, why would why would someone want to kill half the people on the earth? And why do we did we even invent a thing that could do that? And so I remember being in second grade and looking around the classroom like, well, if nerve gas happens, I'm going to want to close that window and put a towel under that door. And like doing all that math as an eight year old wow. going like in case nerve gas happens, how do I save myself? And how do I, I won't be able to save my family, which is scary, but, you know, I had sort of thought through, in case nerve gas happens, how do I, as an eight-year-old, not die? And at that age, you're probably thinking as well, like, well, how do I save Santa Claus? No, I, I, the Santa myth got busted for me real early. Oh, really? Um, yeah, I, and I, I still don't understand why, like, what lesson is to be learned from telling a child there's a Santa and then going, nope, it was us the whole time. Because especially since it is so closely tied to, well, but Jesus definitely existed and was born. This man that you believed in who gave you presents did not exist, though. Like, I don't understand why we tie those things together. I still don't. I know. And it's a weird it's a weird joy that people get out of like that um, strange lie, because I don't think I would enjoy Christmas any less as a kid if I just knew that my presents were coming from 
my parents. Um, yeah. Because the joy was getting the presents, not necessarily that a magical being was giving it to you. Well, and for me, the joy of the whole Santa thing was realizing I am old enough to see that none of these puzzle pieces fit together and Santa Claus couldn't possibly be a real dude. Like, mm-hmm. I enjoyed, like, feeling like I'm a grown-up enough that I can see through this. I can see through this ruse. <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> and I, I, I still don't get... Like, I asked on Twitter, like, sort of around Christmas time, I was like, what is the lesson children are supposed to learn when they find out Santa's not real? And I thought I would get a lot of, oh, Santa's not real? But a lot of people were sincerely, like... The, the lesson they learn is that their parents will do anything to let them experience a little wonder. And I just kind of thought, like, why do we have to manufacture that wonder for them, though? Like, why Why did... And it because the lesson to me seemed to be, like, if we socially agree upon a lie, does that make the lie true? I don't think it does. And that is a weird thing to tie to Christianity. I've never <laughs> understood that. But that was a funny thing, then, because because the way you, when you speak about it that way, I I don't think I ever as a kid tied Santa to Christianity, and maybe that's because I grew up in such a Catholic country, like because Ireland is so intertwined in in so many other ways with the Catholic Church, um, that I I somehow saw Santa as separate. Uh, but is it an option not to be raised Catholic? In because I mean we're I'm from a Catholic family and we've and all that comes from the Irish parts of my family. Both my grandmas are Irish, and so. That's where it came from. Um, but we we'd never really like were you ra- do you feel that you were relate like raised in a Catholic household? Like is that is that just the default state? Yeah, it is, and it's kind of it's that that has kind of broken socially now, but when I was a young and then in the eighties, um I mean it was just it was just a given like pretty, every school in Ireland was a Catholic brothers school like in some shape or form so right. uh, it's if you I remember a big event when I was approximately like 11 was that a girl who had just joined our class um, she was she was an atheist and literally the whole class had to wrap our heads around the idea that someone wasn't Catholic. Wow. Um, and yeah, and we, we asked so many questions and looking back, so many mean questions um, because we were all getting ready to do, have our confirmation. Like uh, the, Mean questions like, are you comfortable that you're going to hell for the rest of your existence? Like those kinds of questions? Not like, even so much. It was more like kind of like, it was almost asking them like, you know, and like, do you eat food? And like, you know, <laughs> like, how do you function? Like, you know, what planet did you come from? It was more so like just it was, why do you drink wine every weekend <laughs> yeah like how did you like not go like did you how did you not get baptized like we couldn't figure that out and so uh yeah it was just it, it was a it was an interesting thing i mean like now it's kind of funny i mean i i can you know uh i, can, I have a bunch of jewish friends in dublin and i have you know most most of my friends consider themselves uh, atheist or agnostic in some way like so it's this kind of um, the the attitude has changed so much in, in a short period of time, but yeah, growing up it was. I mean, the default state was was you were you went to church. <laughs> do you think maybe maybe Dublin might be more cosmopolitan than the rest of Ireland, or do you think all of Ireland is that way now? Um, all the cities in Ireland are that way now. So, uh, and we only have like four or five cities in the country, but like still, uh, yeah, any any sort of metropolitan area is kind of more like that, but. Uh, in the countryside, it would still be very much like everybody is. Everybody knows what like uh, 
not diocese. What's the smaller version of that? Like like parishes? Parish. Everyone knows what parish they're in in the countryside. My parents moved to the country a few years back and they know that what, what parish they're in because uh, everyone talks about it. So mm-hmm. it's a thing. And- and do they observe like you know you were you were born on this feast day so this is your saint like that kind of thing? Uh, no, like funnily enough, my parents like they 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 went along with things, but they were never that devout. Yeah. Uh, so they were quite quite lax. I mean, they haven't gone to church in like twenty years unless it's been a funeral or a wedding. Sure. Um, they don't even do the Christmas thing anymore. So uh, yeah, I think they were. It was because it was more of a thing you were expected to do. But once the kind of nineties hit and people stopped caring about that sort of stuff, uh, they they <laughs> stopped with it. But, but Pope John Paul was so hip, though. <laughs> yeah, but that new Pope. Pope. <laughs> new Pope. Pope, Pope Crystal. Um, all right, well, listen, enough about Catholicism, because that's a Crystal weird... Popesy, that's what, <laughs> what you call him. Um, so we, I guess we're just to, to kind of, I guess, wrap up now, because we, we've hit our hour mark, and I don't do four-hour chats. Um, okay. So uh, we should hit I'll stay f- as long as you'll have me I don't have anything else on today <laughs> Well sadly I would love to, to talk for a few more hours But I have to scoot off soon to, like, going You have to, to eventually like sleep and stuff Yeah. Well I have to go to a play actually uh, Believe it or oh. not All right, cool. um, Yeah my girlfriend's in a, a short play at the moment but um, So I'm going to hit on a few things That uh, I wanted to talk to you about But also allows you to plug um, You have a very successful Patreon page Yeah surprisingly so yeah, it's, I think, one of the best I've ever seen. Um, I don't know who's doing better than you, but those people also deserve awards. Um, what do you put that down to? Um, well, I mean, I don't. I, I think for a start, I was very early to Patreon as a thing because it was founded in Crumbs. I think maybe August of 2014, and I got in on in November of okay. 2014. Um, so... I think I I feel like I introduced a lot of people to it as a platform and maybe and people kind of didn't know what Patreon was at the time. Um, some and I mean, some I also, still don't. It's, yeah. I think it's still being learned. Yeah. I have like patrons who don't know what Patreon is, which is kind of odd. Um, and I mean, I don't I don't really know. I don't really know what happened. I wish I could tell people like, well, you got to do these five things. But it, it's. It was certainly encouraging because I hadn't put out anything in a number of years, any new stuff. And uh, certainly all my YouTube comments are like, come back. Why don't you make stuff anymore? And so I think I was just kind of cashing in on, on that sort of, uh, I don't want to say lack of momentum, but that's kind of what it is on my end. Right. Um, and I mean, I, I also recently had to like restructure the whole thing because I tried to build it like a Kickstarter because I was so... I was so early into Patreon that I thought people aren't going to trust this unless I make it look like a Kickstarter. Right. But uh, a Kickstarter is built for speed and a Patreon's built for comfort. So I had to kind of prune back the like, I'll write you a jingle. Like, I can't, I don't have time for that shit. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of, I'm new to what I joined. Uh, this is why this podcast exists. I joined in December. And uh, yeah, it's learning what you can do. Uh, and then hoping that that's enough for people and if that makes sense at all yeah i've noticed that the tide is kind of shifting with kickstarters too where kickstarters that have a bunch of accessory stretch goals that don't relate to the core product that the kickstarter is funding like i tend to be skeptical of those now and i've seen it feels like fewer kickstarters 
are offering the, you know, we'll do this album and also we'll make a book and also we'll make a animatic and also we'll like, it's just, we'll make this album. And if we get this many, then we'll press it on vinyl. And if we get this many, then we'll, you know, it's all related back to the, the central thing. And I feel like people kind of, patrons and Kickstarter backers are beginning to smell that now. Like, well, this has a lot of stretch goals and extra things and that might get sort of weighed down. We've seen enough Kickstarters and campaigns get encumbered by it right. that we don't demand those things. And I don't feel like anybody demanded those things in the first place, but... Yeah, you know. I think I think it was like the early boom that everyone like, you know, and you get a pony and you get a pony and, and people were very excited by it. But yeah. I think I think it has been enough lessons learned at this point that I think uh, yeah. a, a sensibility has kind of uh, drifted into the whole the whole shebang. And I have a lot of friends who have run Kickstarters who they've delivered the core product of their Kickstarter and the things they're hung up on now are the stretch goals. And uh and that's the thing is like their Kickstarter backers are not like chomping at the bit. Like, where is our extra thing apart from the other 50 things that you've already given us? Like, yeah, people don't people don't demand that much. They just I feel like a lot of the the people that and I, I actually sent an email to Patreon telling them this. But like there's this sort of unique like the people that whitelist um, websites in their ad blocker because they know the ads support the creators they like. That same sort of impulse is what propels platforms like patreon and kickstarter is the like i know that you need to make a living doing this and i don't mind sparing a little bit i will i don't mind looking at an ad i don't mind throwing you a dollar if it helps you continue to do this because i like the stuff you make and that's that's been a hard thing to cash in on until recently Mm. and i'm i'm really looking forward to i i mean i think that there aren't a lot of competitors with patreon now but i think that for other like maybe for like I know that there is like a sort of Patreon type thing for academia now, like support me doing research on X, you know. Okay, that's, that's a good idea. So I would, I'm looking forward to that sort of being the new model for creative type people and independently employed people to make their living. Yeah, it's and, it's, a, and it's funny it's a new model considering it's based on such an old model of yeah, supporting the just, arts. We figured out a way to put it on the internet and sort of spread it out over many people rather than one super rich person. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then also you recently started up a new podcast. Well, I say recently, it's it's a couple of months, but... Um, well, this you, year. You have a few, yeah, you have a few episodes. Yeah, uh, it's called The Peanuts Gallery. Um, and me and my friend uh, Josh A. Kagan are going to review and rewatch and analyze all of the animated uh, primetime Peanuts specials. And am I right um, in that you've been doing them in the order of broadcasts as well? Yes. Um, we're sort of trying to group um, into seasons so that we're not constantly churning out podcasts. Um, but so season one is the 60s, and we're we're almost to a close. We're I think next week we're going to release uh, He's Your Dog, Charlie Brown, which is a barnstormer of an episode. We were really kind <laughs> of blown away. Snoopy is a sociopath. Like, he is a menace. Um, and, and, uh, so this season will be the sixties. And then I think the seventies, we're going to divide into two seasons. Um, and we're going to go through, and also the, the, the feature films, the direct to to video feature films, we're going to go through. Um, and I'm, uh, the the thing I'm hoping to get out of this podcast, because I didn't see the, the, uh, CG Peanuts movie that came out last year. Okay. But in these specials, we've been watching them sort of prune back like sort of learning what beats work and so they have like lucy at the psych desk and snoopy doing some shenanigans on his doghouse 
and watching them sort of hone these beats. Like these are the things that work and these are the things that make a peanut special. And I'm interested to see after watching all of the specials in order, um, putting this movie at the end of that timeline as a, here's the bullion that we spent 50 years distilling. <laughs> it's condensed. It's, it's yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, I've been, I've listened to the first, I think three or four of the episodes. I think that's as many as we have right now. Okay. So I know, well, I know I haven't listened to the very most recent one, so it must be three that I've listened to. Um, and uh, I have to say it's delightful, even though like I haven't recently watched any of the specials that you're talking about. I'm still enjoying the hell out of you guys talk about it. So it's been a lot of fun. Oh, good. Um, so, yeah, I guess those are your uh, two main plugs, I would guess, at patreon.com forward slash Molly Lewis. Uh, yes. And I also have a uh, spruce, recently spruced up website, which I got to continue to spruce up this week, uh, which is mollylewis.wtf. I, I noticed the, the new dot thing. You were the first person that I've kind of seen who actually had a fun <laughs> ending for that. Because MollyLewis.com was taken and I was like, well, what else? Oh, that one. Nope, never mind. I found it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, because I guess you're finally moving away from the Molly 23 or Sweet Afton 23 moniker. Yeah, it's, it's, it's I just got tired of explaining it to people. Right. Um, and it's not... I think it's. I think the only place it remains is on my YouTube because it's very hard to change your YouTube channel slug. Right. Um, but yeah, I would just prefer people to be able to Google my actual name because I don't want to. My Facebook page for a long time was Molly parentheses Sweet Afton twenty three Lewis, and that's confusing for everybody. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, like, really, if if people Google Molly Lewis, I mean, it's you and a skateboarder. So yeah. as long as they recognize that you're not skateboarding, which at first I have to admit, I did watch a video on it because I only saw the back of this woman's head. And for a little while, I thought you skateboarded. She's got real like long curly hair, too. So yeah. it's like not a hard comparison to make <laughs> a real short jump. Uh, thank you very much, Molly, for chatting to me this uh, this month because I oh, do yeah, this on a monthly you. basis. I uh, enjoy the heck out of it. I always end these by asking people what song they want to play out on. Ooh, um. Uh, I, I think Satisfied from Hamilton since we talked about it, right? Okay, sure. I'll, I will write this down so I get it right. Not one of your own. You're not, you're not going to plug yourself? Oh. oh, I thought, okay, I didn't realize that was the prompt. No, um, no you can't. You don't have to, but you can. I, um, I'm, I'm always, I always appreciate when a musician is just like, don't listen to my shit. <laughs> tell you what, I can, I can send you a little sclusi. I've I haven't released Johnny Dicklegs yet, but if you'd like, uh, you can close on that. Oh, yes, please, madam. All right. Uh, make that, a note. Send Aaron Johnny dick legs. <laughs> Send Aaron some dick legs. <laughs> um, all right. Well, uh, yeah. Uh, I will see you in person at Dragon Con 2015. Fingers crossed. 2016. Fingers crossed. 2016. Well, I, I, here's a surprise. Well, I already saw you at Dragon Con 2015. <laughs> yeah. Went back in time and made sure that it happened. <laughs> um, but hopefully, I get to talk to you again between now and then. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be a stranger. Yeah, always, always. Okay, well, I guess I'll let you go. Bye-dee-bye. Enjoy your play. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Since the sun came up this morning, there's a rumor going round That there's a brand new sheriff who just hobbled into town He's not an outlaw or a villain, but his reputation sticks Because where his thighs and calves should go, he's got a pair of dicks because he's johnny johnny dick legs you won't like him when he's angry you won't like him when he's cold because he's johnny johnny 
dick legs And he's come to steal your woman and to pan for all your gold Takes a while to put his chaps on well into the afternoon So we all just play it cool when he flops into the saloon But it just takes a pretty gal to put some spring into his walk And I'm not talking figurative, his legs are giant cocks Cause he's Johnny, Johnny, Johnny Dicklegs You'll have to give him just a minute, he is not quite at his best Because he's Johnny, Johnny, Johnny Dicklegs And he'll rub out all the ne'er-do-wells and ride into the west Johnny Dicklegs Johnny Dicklegs Dicks for legs